This is the Bureau of Lost Culture, dedicated to recollecting countercultural stories. We produce publications, films, events, installations, and broadcasts like this one that evoke the spirit of the underground, independence, resistance, and provocation. I'm Stephen Coates, and I'm here with my collaborator, Paul Hartfield. Hi, Stephen. And our very special guest, again, Mr. Barry Kane. Hi, I'm Stephen. Welcome back, Barry. Thank you. Now, you can find out more about us at Bureau of Culture, bureauoflostculture.com. And part of our mission is a kind of oral history of countercultural stories. And we're here with Barry Kane today because we are talking about his time, his life, in an extraordinary year, 1977, and what led up to that. Now, Barry Kane, if you don't know him, journalist, court reporter, love that bit, <laughs> author, uh, and I suppose a punk historian in, of sorts, and author of 77 Sulfate Strip, The Year That Changed Music, 57 Varieties of Talk Soup, and various other things. Let's dive in. You became the record mirrors, punk correspondent. It sounds strange, isn't it, when you look back, considering what record mirror was like. Well, I mean, let's let's do that. Let's begin with what was record mirror. For people who don't know, this is long gone record mirror, so maybe you can well, just tell us. long gone now. Uh, but record mirror was, um, I think it started in the, in the 60s, and there was another record, uh, another record paper called Disc. And then I think they combined. Uh, I think they combined, and that would have been kind of late 60s, early 70s, maybe. And then it, eventually it just became Record Mirror. Um, and I happened to join it in November 1976. How did you get there? Because you were born in London, so you're, you're a rare thing these days, an actual Londoner. A Londoner, yeah. That's my, maybe that's because I'm here. Um, uh, no, no, I was born off of uh, Pensonville Road uh, uh, in, a, in a complete... When you when you look back, it was amazing. We it was a, 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 a tenement slums of Victorian houses, um, just one road of of these slums that were five stories high, and two rooms on each floor, and a family of uh, uh, up to seven on each floor, uh, with no bathroom anywhere. And Pensilvania Road for people. Pensilvania Road for people who don't know is King's Cross, isn't it? That's really? King's Cross Road. Yeah, Pen- well, the Monopoly board, isn't it? Mm. And uh, yeah, so that's where I was born. And then, but lucky, I was only there for 18 months. I was born in the same house as my dad and his dad, mm. funnily enough. They lived there, uh, born and bred. Yeah. So, uh, so then I ended up, we ended up moving to council flats. And uh, that was, you know, it was fantastic. People slag off council flats, but let me tell you, they were wonderful things for people like us. Because yeah? you lived in such squalor. And then all of a sudden you're, you've got a bathroom. And, uh, when was this? This was 1954. 53, 54, and uh, uh, that I was, old, old, I was just under two, and uh, but we only had one bedroom. I was an only child, and we stayed, uh, I stayed there for the next 12 years, and we moved to a two-bedroom around the corner near Chapel Street Market. I used to work in Chapel Street Market as a, a selling pets on a, on a stall down there. Selling when pets? Was, Hold know, on a second. Whoa, stop, 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 stop. <laughs> Selling pets yes. on, on a market? Yes, it was, uh, it was, there was a pet shop and they had a stall outside and uh, I was 12 and I used to work Friday night, all day Saturday and half day Sunday. This was at the end of Chapel Market. And at times I would stand out in the middle of the market and hold a dog and a bitch. And it was two pound the dog, 30 bob the bitch. That's how I used to stand in that the was middle your sort of the of market. That, that was my call. Was, Two pound the dog, 
30 bob the bitch and people they were all mongrel dogs you know there were no pedigrees there and uh, there was a there was a fish tank full of fish absolutely full of all different fish and i'd work there in the winter and you'd get like kids of seven or eight with their mums coming up and say i want that one <laughs> you know and you you know you're literally hundreds of fish and it's freezing cold water and you've got this little net and you're spending time to you know it was uh, that was what you spent your Friday nights doing. Friday nights and so all day Saturday and so half day Sunday. Just fish and dogs, or was, did you have anything more exotic? <laughs> no, it wasn't very hamsters, rabbits. That's right. all people. It was one in each it was, called, it was it was called yeah, <laughs> ten bob, <laughs> ten bob. Yeah. Well, the market's still there, but I'm not sure they're allowed to sell Chapel pets anymore. No, no, Chapel Street Market. So mm. yeah, it's just it's so different. <laughs> Even my, my dad used to have a nylon. He used to sell nylons in the fifties. Nylons there. being it's stockings, right? Because uh, they were quite uh, quite hard to get come by back in the fifties and forties. Mm. It was uh, so. My life was grew. I was grew up around the market. Yeah. So how did you get into writing? I uh, just loved it at school. Love writing, like reading. You just, you know, even though there were like 40 kids in my primary school class in each year, in it, we had two classes, so it was 80 kids in one year, right in the middle of London. That was just, you know, around Farringdon Roadway. And, uh, but I, we did, I passed my 11 plus, which was great. I went to a grammar school and that was in the Angel, a very, a very, very established, very academic grammar school. I don't know how I got there. I was like, just lucky that we passed 11 plus. Went there and, uh, you know, teachers with mortarboards and, and gowns. And, you know, this was like Tom Brown's school day. I couldn't believe it. You know, there's, I, I just, uh, it completely psyched me out. I'm just like this little working class awake from, uh, anyway. But so who it, loved writing? So I like writing. Right. So, yeah, and it helped. It mm. was a wonderful school in that way. I hated it for a long time, but mm. I got used to it. It was, uh, there were a lot of tough kids there, even though it was a grammar school. They were all, it was like the first intake of a lot of working class kids. Right. But no, then I carried on, went to see, took some A-levels, and uh, that was it. Then you left school, you did, didn't think about going to university. And what did you do when you left school then? I applied for jobs um, uh, on newspapers, uh, local, local papers, Islington Gazette, uh, St Pancras Chronicle, you know, Camden Journal. No, uh, yeah, no chance. Uh, and then, and then I, um, I, w I was signing on around the corner of Labour Exchange at the end of Chapel Road. So it's all still around Chapel Market. I was even signing on there. Uh, and, you didn't uh, fancy just selling your dog to keep, no, keep yourself, yeah, in, keep keep yourself warm in. at night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, so, but this is—it's funny how things have changed. You know, you—I I remember going in there, and they would talk to you. Someone would—you'd go and have a quick interview with someone. And I remember sitting down with this woman, and uh, she was. You know, what do you want to do? I said, well, I wanted to be a journalist, but I've, you know, I can't, I, there's no chance of money, blah, blah, blah. I'd already applied for another college. I didn't get in. I did actually apply. By, uh, and uh, so I was just drifting, you know, and uh, she said, okay. Anyway, she rang me up at home about a week later and said, we have, uh, there's a job for a, uh, a, gen, um, a, a trainee court reporter at Marble Street Magistrates Court, which is right next door to the Palladium, bang opposite Carnaby Street. Uh, so I didn't, I'd found every interview I'd ever been to for that, uh, at that time and uh, I didn't fancy it, but I went, she insisted I go. She said, you want to do it? Do it. You know, wow. on the phone. Wow. That's an important figure in your life then. So, uh, very, very. I've, I've, I actually wrote about her in, in, in one of the books. She, uh, I never saw her again. <laughs> I probably never thanked her. Jesus. Anyway, you can thank her now. If she's out there, you can. If she's up, when I, when I get up there, yeah. I should think she's about. I don't know, yeah, 90 odd, I should think now. But no, she was just, um, it was fantastic. And so I went down and I got the job and I became a trainee court reporter. 
which changed my life in more ways than one. So yeah. then you actually started learning your trade as a journalist, effectively. Yes. I mean, so it was very, it was very depressing when mm. I first started. You go through three phases when you're doing something like this because you're seeing life here, mm. you know, mm. prostitutes, three-card tricksters, murder. Every single case has to go through uh, a magistrate's court. And when you think uh, uh, in that area, the West End, Soho, Chelsea, we covered all that area. It was incredible. And you're yeah. writing at reports, basically, yeah. of, what, of what went on. But if, if there was a really good story, what you'd do is then you go into the office. And the office I worked in, I think I, I only found out a few, a few years ago, actually, was the same office that Charles Dickens had worked in. It wow. was within the courthouse. And um, it was a really old building. It's a, it's a hotel now. You should say, actually, because, of course, that's what Charles Dickens was before he became yeah, Charles reporter. Dickens, effectively, he was, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah, court yeah. reporter. Yeah, yeah I know. Well, so, we're, and- we're very similar, <laughs> me and Charles. <laughs> Uh, and um, yeah, so so, but the, the, this is where you learn your trade because you'd mm. you'd have to ring um, the news desks of all the different national papers and sell them the story, uh, and then if you sold them the story, then you'd write it up in the style of the newspaper you're writing it for. Yeah, you know, I was only eighteen, nineteen years. So you get on the phone, you say we've just there's been an accountant from Hampstead. Uh, he's been caught flashing into a boutique on, on Carnaby Street. Are you interested in the story? And the son, or whatever it was at the time, might come back and say, yeah, that's right up a street. Uh, and then you'd be then commissioned to actually write it up yeah. and elaborate on, that's it. add a and, few more uh, details. Uh, in, in, their, in their style. Mm. So if it was writing it for the son, you'd, you'd you know, give a flashy, flashy few opening paths. Mm. Uh, if it's the Times or the Telegraph, it's a bit straighter. Would you elaborate? Would there be a little bit of you in there? Would that be? A... Uh, I tried to. Yeah, actually, yeah. I think okay. that's what because I wanted to write. Mm. So it was, I couldn't just. I had to look for angles and different things. You know, I was always looking for that to make it a story. So you could, you knew what a good story was. You, you learn a lot. It's a great play. And then three times, two two times a week or three times a week, I used to go to shorthand after work, a night school. To learn how to write in shorthand, because of course time is of the essence, right? You've got to write all this stuff down. You get I was the, doing all this in longhand. Right, and then the sun or whoever it might be say, yeah, we love that story, we want it. And then of course you've got to turn it around incredibly quickly as well. So you're learning how to do stuff at it, speed yeah, you did, to a deadline. You didn't think of it, you just did it. You just, mm. I, didn't, I thought this is what it is, you know. Mm. And... Uh, and obviously analog, no computers, nothing at all. No, they were old nineteen twenties typewriters yeah. we had. Yeah. That's all they were. Bang, yeah. big old things. You know, bang. You could hear them miles away. Mm. And it was. Uh, Can I just ask a couple of more questions yeah, about sure. it? It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, this isn't, by the way, what we're even supposed to be talking about. But it's actually <laughs> so good. We've got to carry on. Um, Sorry, this sounds a bit pervy, but I was going to say, what were you wearing? What was the outfit for a court um, reporter? Well, it was a jacket and tie. Right. Uh, but not a suit. Mm. So I'm thinking Tintin, you see, I'm thinking. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Well, well, we used to have, a, you, you used to sit, you got to know all the magistrates mm. as they come in, you know, and uh, they look at you and there was, you know, and then they mm. play up to you. They come out with a quote and they because they loved being in the papers. Like you get the evening news and evening standard then, especially mm. in London, you know, so they'd love to sh- show off to their powers in the club. You know. <laughs> oh, look at this. Oh yeah, you made the front page. I remember all those, all of them, they were such characters. Mm. And uh, one of them was the uh, son of George Roby, the old uh, music hall artist uh 
So, I mean, so I mean, because time is pressing, we're going to have to sort of take yes. gigantic loops. Fascinating, there is. So, so give anyway, it, so I, get, how did you get from being court reporter? Well, I went from court. I went from the court to. I ended up going to uh, do my indentures. I got a job on the after a, 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 um, a very ro- kind of romantic interlude. I then went off um, to uh, Gloucester and did my indentures on the evening newspaper there, the Evening Citizen. Uh, What's it? Indentures what are indentures? Like, like apprenticeship as, okay. a, as a journalist. It's three and a half years, but I did it in two. Because I, you had to go to block release. I went to. I actually did go to college at last down in Cardiff. Two months there. And then, uh, anyway, Living in the Cotswolds. Yeah, I had. I lived in a converted barn just outside in um, in uh, Slad, which my local was the Woolpack, which was the uh, where Cider with Roses set. That must have been a bit of a change uh, from Pentonville oh, Road, was from uh, from the council flat of the in King's Cross. No, it was great. Then. At f- Came back to London, got a job on the South East London Mercury in Deptford High Street as the entertainment editor. And that's where I started to, to interview. I'd, I'd already started a pop column on, on, the, on the paper up in Gloucester, Pop Puri. <laughs> oh, it's classic. <laughs> that's, that's a shocker. That's, that's it? brilliant. Love it. Pop Puri. And, uh, and, and so, you know, you interviewed, start, I started interviewing people up there, like, you know, they, they used to get bands like Casey and the, and, and the Sunshine Band and Edwin Starr. And, uh, what were your musical tastes? My we- tastes were, um, well, it was Beatles. Uh, I grew up with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they were my number one band in the, growing up in the 60s. Uh, and this, I, I think in the 70s, music lost its way a bit. It, it, you know, I loved the, the later, I remember going to see... Uh, uh, bands in 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 like Manor House, my local uh, local area bands like Ten Years After and 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 bands like that, and I just loved you know at the end of '67 music changed. You started getting the real prominence of the guitar solo and you know it really in ba- and bands that, that it threw up, and it was really exciting times. The music was changing, you know, but then it got to a kind of '70s after '71, 70, and we started getting a bit. If you look at the charts, it's incredible. You know, uh, in in those seventies, it was it just got a bit boring. But I was still that's when I was doing the pop column. So I ended up back at the uh, at the South East London Mercury and uh, and and um, got to know a guy um, uh, in PR who did a PR for people like the Who and Ten Years After and and things like that. And we used to talk on the phone. And then he got me to see gigs and everything. And then in July 1976, I'd heard about punk, but I didn't know what it was. I'd never seen a punk band. And in July 1976, he was doing the PR for this band. And he said, come down and see them. And it was at Dingwall's, uh, you know, Dingwall's by Camden Lock. Uh-huh. Uh, a noble venue. All the bands, yeah. That has all the bands played there. So I went down. I was very sceptical, you know. And, uh, and then it was The Stranglers. Uh, so what year was this? 76. This right. was July 76 in that hot summer. And the Stranglers played. Um, funny enough, I didn't know until like, it was the night that John Jack Burnell had a punch-up with Paul Simonon of The Clash. And I think the Ramones and the Flaming Groovies were on the same bill. It was quite a night. But, uh, and what did and, you think of, what did you make of that then? So you've been sent there. Well, yeah, but... I, I thought, hold on, you know, this is music. When the Strangers started playing, I thought, this, this, is, this is proper music, you know. Plus, they're all older than me, which is a bonus. I always thought you should... I was going to how old were you at that point? I was 23. So you've been sent there to cover it, so you didn't know about this scene or no, whatever I knew, it was. No, I'd read about it and everything, right. but I was very sceptical. I just thought it was right. just a load of hype. You know? So when you say it was proper music, what it, did... Well, what, they could play. 
right. very, very well. You know, they were, they were very, I mean, Jean-Jacques Bernal was a classically trained guitarist. They'd all been to university, you right. know. So you've been going to uh, gigs, local bands? No, not local bands. Right. I, 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 only, I never saw... I mean, you'd go down to the Marquee or the Hundred Club, but it was, it was, the times were a bit, it was, it was very shallow times for music in the mid 70s. So suddenly you're at this gig and it's. Well, I'd never seen anything like it. Was right? it more energy? Not Because obviously the earlier bands could play, yeah, but, but this, this was about energy. Or was but it? the thing was, even though I was told it was punk mm. and I read it was mm. punk, the Stranglers weren't punk. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they weren't a punk band. Yeah, but I didn't know. And I thought, well, hold on, if this is punk. Because, you know. I mean, the impression I've got of that time um, is that the problem of being in a way, had it not, that there was all these bands before the so-called prog rock bands who the problem was is that they could play too well or something. Bands playing complicated time signatures and widdly-widdly stuff. Wasn't, wasn't punk in some ways a reaction to that? Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, the first time I ever interviewed, I, I interviewed Hugh Cornwall backstage that night briefly for the paper and listened to it, and it was quite unusual what they were talking about. It was different from the usual interviews you had. You know, no one sort of spoke like that about things like that. In terms of his intelligence, in terms, of, yeah, and in terms of what the subject matter, you know, it was quite out there, and, and it was it was different, and it was refreshing. Anyway, but that was it, and I never, you know, the few five months ended up with a job on Record Mirror. I went from uh, from there to Record Mirror, and I still, and then I went to interview my first punk. Uh, band for them. So you you went to Record Mirror as a jobbing journalist. It wasn't like okay, I've got to work for this music newspaper because I'm a music nut. It was just like for you, it was just okay. That's an interesting job. Is that right? Or, yeah. yeah. Well, no, it was a music. No, music. Uh, I, I I never dreamed I'd end up writing about music, which was my great passion in life. Right. So you were driven by music oh, to go from the South East London. Yeah, paper. it was wonderful, and right. it was a national. It was national. You mm. know, it was a, it was selling about 150 thousand a week. So you're a music fan, you're a journalist, so for you, landing a job like that was like a dream job. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. And, and it turned out to be just that. <laughs> and so what, how did it start? Tell us, what, tell us what it was like working in Record Mirror before we even get into like the bands that you met and the stuff that you did. Right. What was the sort of atmosphere like of the place? Um, well, you, so you've got to remember, I, I, had a, I was sporting a kind of beard and I had long hair. Quite I'm, long hair. I'm finding that difficult to believe. <laughs> this is a kind of beard as well. I don't know, but yeah, well, it wasn't a shaggy one, but it was like you know, there was a a, a, a thick, it's quite thick-ish, where <laughs> thick as I can go. And uh, so I wasn't, you know, I, I turned up for work on the first day at Record Mirror, and I was wearing a jacket and shirt, and I looked a bit smart, and I thought, and then I looked around, and sounds were on that. They had half the office with sounds and the other half was record mirror. And of course, there's all these guys walking about and, you know, especially on the sound side, you get all people walking in and they look completely out of it. Everyone was out of it. It was amazing. It was just incredible. The music would be going on all day and you'd sit there and I'd sit with Sibyl, this is great, you know. Oh, can you do a quick phoner with David Gates from Bread? Okay, yeah. (laughs) You know, can you, uh, yeah, I mean... could you go and interview Bert Whedon for us? Of course I will. I went to interview Bert Whedon. <laughs> did, did you have an extensive knowledge or was that yeah, just you, you were... Yeah, yeah. So across the board, you didn't have a certain top, topic that you loved? It no, I, like, kind of, I, I had a great, you know, I liked pop music, I liked yeah. everything. I never expected to be a punk writer, to right, write about okay. punk at all. Right. But then that all changed when I interviewed Johnny 
Johnny Rotten, as he was. Right. Then. So, so, be, so you're you're at Record Mirror. You're a sort of jobbing music journalist. Jobbing you know, music. what one one moment you're interviewing David Gates from Bread. The next minute, Bert going to Zurich to see Chicago play. A living, you know, being put up in a seven star hotel and you know, flown to Zurich to watch Just Chicago to, to watch a Chicago show right. and stay overnight and be wined and dined. And it was Who's paying for it that? Was, the record companies. Right. Okay. So you, you were spinning heaven. I was, yeah, it was, it was incredible. Right, right. But, you know, it, 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 if it carried on like it did up until, seven, you know, 77, uh, uh, then I don't know if I do, because nothing was happening. It was just a bit, it was stuck. It was... Uh, right, so when did you first start to hear about... No, you were hearing about it, and I'd never, I, it was, don't, this was sort of middle of November, I think I joined. And within, I think, a week or two weeks, um of taking all this way I was doing anyway, I, they said, can you go down to EMI and interview uh, the Sex Pistols? Uh, you knew who they were? Oh, yeah, everyone. Everybody knew who the Sex Pistols were. They were the flavour of the moment, even before they did the Bill Grundy show. And I went down there, and it was the week they were releasing Anarchy in the UK. And uh, I got ushered into the, the big press. There was a big press area, and they had individual offices around. And there were... And there was a sex pistol in each office. <laughs> so just what you're lucky you draw. So anyway, I got Johnny. Uh, and, and, you know, and then that interview kind of changed it all for me. He was the best interviewee I'd ever had. He knocked my socks off. He really did. He was fantastic. He was, every sentence was heaven, you know. He didn't give a fuck. Basically. Can I just read a little bit from your interview with him? Yeah. <clears throat> This is rotten talking at the time. This is your headline. I feel sorry for people who stand up for what they believe and get kicked in the teeth. That's what would have happened to me if I hadn't joined the pistols. I would have been locked up, put quietly away, classified as insane. <laughs> well, he wasn't your standard bloke, put it that mm. way. He was. It looked as if he was bordering on insanity at times when you interviewed him. What did but, you talk about? Um... Just, it was just him spouting off about what the pistols were and how he'd, how he'd uh, um, suffered as a, you know, sort of growing up a bit because he had, um, uh, he was very ill when he was, when he was young. Um, and his, that changed a lot of his outlook as well. He was, a, uh, uh, it was just, it, it, it was nonstop. He was pelting you, and I'm trying to keep up with my shorthand, you know, struggling away, because he didn't stop. He just went, and I, and I just came out as I was battered with it. And it's so funny, because the amount of people that I've spoken to over the last couple of years since getting a little bit back into the business, but just on the outskirts, that said they saw it, because it made the front cover of mm. Record Mirror. But what was lucky is that it was the day before, if not two days before, the Bill Grundy interview. The Bill Grunner interview being the famous one where this sort of rather kind of old school kind of, you know, old style, older white guy interviewer is interviewing them and sort of like trying to take the piss out of them basically. Right. And then they, yeah. they turn it round on him and make him, look, make, rotter. make him look like an idiot. Right. So that was, that was a very big, very big moment in their career, wasn't Rotten it? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it was genius, six, yeah. It was it, well, it, 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 and that was it. That, that changed was the beginning. It, for them, that changed, it? It, changed, it changed everything. Mm. That interview, single, because they were three days in a row, mm. the uh, on the front page of 
the tabloid press three days in a row. That was unheard of. Their tour was cancelled. It was, uh, you know, it was disaster for them. They couldn't play. Although all great publicity. Oh, it was fantastic. Well, it was great publicity for the other bands as well because they couldn't play, so I never saw them. I still haven't, I hadn't seen the Pistols play it then. Uh, but then I started to sort of invest. Then I went to see the Clash in uh, Harlesden, and it was, you know, oh, this is great. <laughs> it was just the energy and the audience and the. So, you know, I went, to, I went to the Roxy when it opened, you know. It was just, it was fantastic. So for you, this was like a revolutionary moment as well. because oh, of course, yeah. You're a massive music fan. Yes. And, you, and obviously you're seeing lots of bands. You've got lots of, you've got quite wide tastes. Yeah. You know, you can go and see Chicago. And yeah. stuff, but suddenly this thing has happened. It's like it erupted. Yeah. And that changed you, did it? Oh, it absolutely. Was it the feeling of being in a... A gang that's got together and is something's happening. Or was it? What was it? Was, the... It was uh, the audience were becoming just as important mm. as the act. You know, mm. they, they were just uh, um, uh, the the audience were there to look good. They looked good. I mean, that was, the, the fashion bit came after. If you went to the early punk kids, there were kids in just jeans and mm. yeah, they weren't. That punk scene came a little bit later. There were the there were a few, but it was mainly just ordinary blokes who just loved the music they weren't punks a lot of them were you know there were suburban kids a lot of suburban kids got into uh, into it and uh, and, lot, and uh, you know the same interview he's saying we've got to fight the entire super band system groups like the who and the stones are revolting yeah so he he's very much setting out his stall Absolutely. as opposed to everything else so how was that for you because of course you were also covering those bands weren't you so oh, yeah but i thought it was great that's why you wrote it, you know, bring it on, mm. let's have some more. Because it was, music it was just crap in the set. It became, in general, there were obviously exceptions, but in general it was crap. Mm. And he, he felt like everything he said was from the heart, which made a difference. It did. It was and it also convincing. helped that he was, see, before I went into that interview, there were guys, there were right, the journalists sitting in the middle there, waiting to be going. And one of them was quite nervous about the prospect. This is the hype that had been built out about. And this was even before the Grundy interview. See, in London, they weren't known. What the Grundy interview did is it spread it across the country. Even though it was a, a London show, the newspapers the next day across the country had, who are these, mm. you know? And uh, it was, it was, uh, you couldn't, you can't buy that kind of publicity. So how brilliant. Right, exactly. So for you then, what happened next? So, you know, you've in, done this interview and then you started to specialise, did you? Yes, in, I started seeing The Damned, um, uh, The Clash, The, uh, the Jam. Uh, I started seeing all these bands that were around and do, doing the rounds then. Um, and how are you writing about it? Were you trying to write about it in a way that caught the energy of it? Because, I mean, this, was, this must have required a different kind of writing as well, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it did, actually. There were, there, this was the age of some really, really good, good uh, writers. You know, the, 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 the Charles Shalmaris and the Nick Kents and the Tony Parsons and Julie Burchill. It was a, a golden age for music writing, I think. Um, see, when you worked for Record Mirror, it was a bit, it was a bit more uncool, <laughs> Record Mirror. You know what I mean? It was still had that tainted with like, it was colour. It was the first one to be colour on, you know, uh, on the cover and, and inside. And it was like, it had that pop appeal. But then we changed it around. That, that 77 changed it around. And all the punk bands wanted to be in Record Mirror because the kids buying Record Mirror were kids who bought records. Mm. All the punk bands wanted to be in it. And there were, I was the only one who was writing about it. So consequently, I, I got to see 
the, you know, some of the key events of 77 involving punk bands. It was just, uh, you know, you would, I, I can't believe how fortunate that was. Your colleagues were carrying on covering the Stones and the Who and all those yeah, bands who were course, sort of yeah. doing their thing, yeah, but yeah. you'd become, yes. partly by default, but also because you love the music, you'd become the punk correspondent for the Record Mirror. That's right? right. And that involved also going on tour and yeah. and, and tell us about it. I mean, so it must have been a very exciting time. It was. I mean, the, um, the well, the next time I saw the Pistols, they weren't playing, they were banned everywhere. But they were they got a gig, a top secret gig, organized by NBC television, because they came over to do a film about punk from America and they wanted to to do a documentary and they wanted to set so they got they arranged this gig at the Notre Dame Catholic Hall, just round the back of Leicester, Leicester the Odeon, Leicester Square. And uh and there were only fifty people. Uh it was first come, first serve, and I'd heard about it on the grapevine, and I got in. Uh, and it was, I'd never seen them play before. And it was the first gig that Sid Vicious played. And, and John Lydon then had black hair. And, uh, uh, and then I just, uh, it, it was just 50 people and it was like a private audience to see the Sex Pistols. And it was, it, well, it just was incredible. And I remember coming out and I think I might've been the only journalist. I certainly one of the, uh, the only, I think the only journalist on the music paper and there might've been other writers there. I don't know, but definitely on the music paper. I just got lucky. And I came out with a photographer um, who got all the, he was the only photographer there. And that, to the, that, that was a guy called Richard Young, who's be, who's a, became a very uh, big name in photography. And uh, yeah, so that was a then I And then I just, the, the da, people like The Damned, um, I got to know them well. And then I got invited when they, they were the first punk band to play America from the UK uh, in April 77. And I went over with them. I'd never been to America before. They'd never been on a plane before. And uh, we went over on, a, on, a, on, a, on the plane to... Um, what was that like? Um, it was good. I mean, it was... It was uh, Stiff had arranged it. They were on Stiff Records then. And Stiff had arranged it. And I knew the guy, the PR guy, who was a New Yorker. And he'd arranged... I thought, you know, I'd been on a few... I'd been to Chicago, you know. With, I'd been to... I'd done a few of these little trips. You get treated really well and room service. and you, So you don't need any money because you won't get much money. So, you know, you're doing all these trips. So you do it all on them. So you... So... So on the plane, we're going over. And he said... Uh, I said, so what hotel is it? And he said, oh, no, it's a mate of mine. Um... You're sleeping in his, uh, his place. I said, what, my bedroom? And I said, it's not a bedroom. He said, you're on the couch for a week. My first time to, but it was right in the middle of Manhattan, but it was on a couch. And uh, I, I, I then spent the next week on this couch. It was, um, it was no, it was uh, incredible. They played CBGBs four nights in a row. They did two shows a day, four nights in a row. And uh each night got better and better, and I'm still. You're standing in CBGBs, and you're thinking, "Yeah, you know, Jesus Christ, this is." Uh, you know, I'd never been to America, mm. and I always, always dreamed of going to New York. It was always my city of. Yeah, it was my city of dreams growing up, mm. and it was fan. It lived up to every expectation. It's nothing like the sterile place it's become now. Mm. Well, London too, I imagine. So this is this is seventy seven, right? London, yeah, London was it. I mean, let's, let's face it. I mean, New York and London were mm. absolute shit holes. Basically, there's no better word for it. They were dumps. Most of London was a dump. I brought, as I say, I lived in King's Cross. King's Cross was kind of the worst, one of the worst. So you grew up in these you know, really rotten surroundings. Um, 
and and the council flats that I said did really well and took off the councils started running out of money and they couldn't really look after them like they right. should have been. So they started getting run down. These big councils lots of crime. And it just led to, yeah, there was, and and it kind of punk reflected Mm. that. It was the first time we'd, I mean, you'd had the skinhead movement at the end of the 60s. uh, uh, Then it came, made a brief comeback in the 70s, late 70s, it's still around, but it was a blend of that. But punks, uh, when you look back, a lot of punks were hippies in disguise. You know, a lot of them were absolute hippies. Uh, And I've seen that sort of since. I suppose, I suppose, this is our theme after all. There was something countercultural about the hippie movement and there's something deeply countercultural about the punk movement in a different way, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. They're kicking against the traces in a different sort of way. Did you I mean what was for the bands so like for, for, for the damned, you know, going to America, what do you think that was like for them? I mean, they've not even been on a plane before and then suddenly no. they're, they're playing four nights at CBGB. So how did they react? Well they, well, I'll tell you how Rats Gabies reacted, because on that plane going over, when I was told I wasn't gonna be in a hotel I didn't have any, I had hardly any money. So I didn't know what I was going to do. So I had a panic. I really did. because I didn't have a credit card or anything like that. And I didn't have money. And I thought, and it wasn't easy to get hold of money then because I thought it was all going to be on the hotel, you know, as it had been before. So I got a device to plan of doing a, a raffle um, amongst the passengers of, <laughs> if you uh, uh, put down the time that the wheels touch down, at the at JFK, and uh, 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 so everyone put an estimated time down. And I said, the winner is a dollar or a pound to go. Mm. And uh, so I went around, and I collected quite a lot of money. And this, I mean, I look, I, I, you know, it's terrible, really. So I went back, and I said to Rat, I said, Rat, I said, uh, well, I'm doing this raffle. You're going to win it, right? And then we're going to split. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to split the price. We're going to split the price. I got the air hostesses dishing out money and bring it all over to me. And then I got the pilot to announce the time he'd heard it. It was hard hear one Enterprise and guy started a raffle out here. And, uh, and, uh, and the winner, Rat, Jesus Christ, Rat. Well done, mate. <laughs> Sitting next to you, best mate. Well done, mate. Oh no, I wasn't sitting next to him. I made sure I wasn't sitting next to him. And uh, and he said, and and I never saw him for. I saw him obviously a few years, a a few times after that. But then I never saw him for about twenty five years. And I said, the first thing he said, he said, God, that was really handy that money. He remembered it. He couldn't forget it. He said, I do feel guilty about it though. I said, Well, give it back then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, those are the days when you could actually speak with a pilot, right? I know you could. Yeah, I know. So you got to. So, of, of all of those bands, so you, and you also there's The Clash and uh, various others. I mean, did you get close to any of them? Um, see, I, I, there, there weren't many professional journalists, if I can say that. In the, I had my NCTJ certificate. I was, you know, trained as a journalist. There weren't that many professional journalists in, in, in the music press at the time, but great writers, but not necessarily professional journalists. It's like weird because I, I, I never did because of that, as I say, that, pro, that kind of professionalism, I tried to keep it at arm's length. Of course, you got friendly with them, um, uh, being on the road, uh, uh, you got to know them very well and you went drinking with them and everything, but I never made it a habit of taking their phone numbers and ringing them up mm. or I never, you know, I just, when you saw them, you saw them, but you, in those days, don't forget, you were seeing people every night. Right. You'd go out. The club scene was fantastic. There was live music everywhere. You could drive down to. I used to drive down to the Marquee uh, in Wardour Street and park up 
you could park up in front of it. That's amazing. <laughs> Absolutely, and just walk in and and uh, see a band, and you drive somewhere else, and you go there, and and it was just then you'd end up in the speakeasy, and that were that was where the that that was the scene, and that was all of '77. And all those bands in, in, that, in that one year, there were the debut, the debut albums of The Clash, The Stranglers, The Jam, The Damned and The Pistols, jo- uh, Johnny Thunders, Ian Dury, <laughs> you know, Elvis Costello. They were all their first albums. You must have been so busy with the reviews. God, I mean, I'm just trying to keep up with this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then <clears throat> it moves into 78 and what's changing now? Well, 78, um, I went to the, the States when The Pistols did that infamous tour and I went over. Uh, uh, to see them play, I saw them play Atlanta and Memphis, which was surreal. And uh, and then I came back to New York, um, and then I, I interviewed. Uh, um, I went to see Blue Oyster Cult. It was snowing. I remember it was snowing, and I had to interview Blue Oyster Cult and everything. This was when I was still on record. Mirror. But I'd had enough, and I and I got offered a job as uh, as running a, a record company um, for Albion Records, and Albion managed uh, Joe Jackson and the Stranglers. So they wanted to start a record company, and I, me along with another guy, a guy called Alan Edwards, who's a PR guy, um, he, uh, 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 we were asked to run it together. So I put my notice in at Record Mirror, and, be, uh, and then just as I was about, about to leave, they rang up and said, oh, we're not doing the record company now. Dang. So, but Alan said, come and work with him as a PR. So we worked out of a squat in Covent Garden, and he specialised in punk bands. So we did the PR for the Stranglers, uh, Blondie, Generation X, the Buzzcocks. Um, uh, we were doing, you know, it, it, out of this squat right in the middle of Covent Garden. It was amazing when you look back. And but I could, and I organised um, uh, a trip to Iceland for the Stranglers, uh, which became a really uh, it's gone down in pop history. That one. Um, Why? Uh, oh, it was just um, it was incredible. I took we took about thirty journalists over and uh, uh, to, for four days in Reykjavik. <laughs> in, in 1978 and they played the, the Stranglers played this, uh, the Exhibition Hall which holds about 12,000 and uh, it was one big Wild West brawl I've never seen blood I've never seen fights I've never seen anything like it broken bottles because there's no beer there was no beer right anywhere so there's only whiskey vodka and there, oh. there's broken bottles. Of, honestly, there was pools of blood. It was incredible. How did that start? What was that? What was the reason? It was just well, they, apparently every. I don't know what it's like now. Obviously, mm. it's got a lot better. But they used to have like ambulances and stuff parked outside the clubs before anyone went in. <laughs> <laughs> we used to see them. I couldn't believe it. But it was that was quite something. That that uh, so that but that was my only trip. And what a trip! But that was my only trip. I really organised. But I did. I couldn't deal with journalists. To be honest with you, oh my god! Oh, dear. what a bunch! <laughs> I really, God, I swear it was a PR. I've always been very, uh, you know, I'm very good with PRs because I know what job they're having to do. Because a lot of journalists are so awkward. Oh, and a lot of them were so up themselves. It was, un- oh, I just couldn't cope. I, I, so I had one day, like, I just can't do this anymore. I'm not, it's not me. I want to get, I want to get back into writing, which is what my love it was. You know? So I went back as a freelance. Right. And so, then, you, and you carried on covering, covering punk or were you, you covering uh, no, everything? everything. Right. I then became, a, a, I did the pop column for the Daily Record, which was then the second biggest selling newspaper in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the, the, the sister paper of the Daily Mirror. So I used to do the pop column for them twice a week. So that, gave me access to, I used to write the pop column for the even the London Evening News uh, uh, at the same time, the Daily Star, 
but then also I had a thing with Record Mirror. They paid me a retainer and um, a couple of other magazines. So I had, I was doing a lot. I'd, I'd you know, really picked it up since coming out. It was really, people were very, really helped me. It was so nice. And, uh, and then, yeah, so what, consequently, if a PR gave you a job, you'd get it in six publications, different publication. It was like going back to the court days of writing mm. in different styles. So you'd have to write in different, I'd write for my guy, you know. <laughs> I feel, I feel like a perv writing for my guy, <laughs> Jesus. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so I said, but it was like the damned, writing about the damned for my guy. How weird is that? But that's what it was like. The, that's how punk had gone. It actually had seeped into that Generation X. Billy Idol was on the front covers of all Jackie and all that, right. you know, the pin-up punk. It was inevitable, isn't it? It's always the same, Absolutely. isn't it? Always the same. Yeah. So, um, but there is one character who we haven't mentioned so far. We- McLaren. Frank. So, um, you know, let's not, forget that a lot of this shenanigans with the Sex Pistols was being at least partially stage managed by Malcolm McLaren wasn't oh, it? No, and then, it was. oh, and no, I mean it it, if, even if he didn't actually get it to happen, you know, even the Bill Grundy well, stuff and stuff. I don't he, think he deliberate, that wasn't deliberate that mm. Bill Grundy thing. He, it, McLaren would never have staged that. But he was very good at making use of it, wasn't he? Yes. yes. So what was your, when did you first meet him? I met him um, I guess I probably met him, which I can't remember, up at Manchester Square where EMI used to be. Mm. Uh, that, that when I went up to interview them, he must have been floating around. But but then um, the next thing was I when I saw, I saw them at Notre Dame Hall at gig. I met him there, chatted with him, didn't you know? Then I met him again. Um, uh, that would have been. When I did the interview, I interviewed them in the park in the West End, the Pistols. I interview, I interview, I've interviewed John about six times. And I, I interviewed him in the park. Uh, 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 that would have been about June 77. And then... Um, were they changing? And they was... Well, no, that was just because God Save the Queen was, uh, was coming out. So I did them at Anarchy in the UK and God Save the Queen. It was great. And uh, it was... Um, no, they were, again, it was so refreshing. And Steve and Steve, Jack, Sid wasn't there. He was in hospital, I think, as usual. But uh, Sid and uh, 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 Paul and Steve were there. So it was the three of them. And I really liked them. I really, uh, I really liked the, uh, the other two. They were really good guys, you know. And as I say, Johnny came from Islington. He was born and bred around the corner from me. So we had, you know, so he, he liked, I think. That. So anyway, we had, um, that was an interview. And it just, uh, so again, I, met, I would have met McLaren, um, I went up to his office. Uh, I used to go up to Glitterbest. Their offices used to be Glitterbest, and they were uh, in Dryden Chambers, which was just off of Oxford Street. And uh, really strange offices. And um, and that's where you used to go. So you'd hang out there. You go if you're going to do an interview or something like that, you know. And uh, there, I did. I think with uh, did, did them when they did Ronnie Biggs. When they did the single with Ronnie Biggs and did a three way with Ronnie Biggs on the phone <laughs> from and, Brazil. Uh, but he was um, yeah yeah. Um, so he was always friendly and chatting. He liked, you know, there was stuff that would be lying around and, you know, if you want, I'll take it, you know. Wish I'd have done that, actually. I should have done it. But there was, you know, it was just really nice and a uh, nice feel. It was a nice feel up there and it was exciting. You so know? what did you make of him? Um, I still didn't really get to know, I didn't really know him, but then, uh, and then time went by and then I went over to America uh, never got to really see him or the band. <laughs> I, I always remember after the Atlanta gig, about there was a. I tried to get the backstage of the big this big guy. Anyway, and he went. I said, "Could you tell them the Barry Kane from from London says hello?" All right, and he went away. And how come? They said, "What they say?" They said, "Hello." 
<laughs> never saw them. <laughs> they kept them all away from the yeah. press. Vir- right. Virgin Records never paid a penny for that because all the, they knew all the nationals would want to go there. You know, the, the, America, uh, the Sex Pistols playing the Deep South. There's bound to be trouble, you know. Mm. As it was, they broke up afterwards. But that, that and then, um, and I remember seeing Sid Vicious at the airport in Atlanta. He'd gone missing. They had a, they had a coach, uh, and they would go from gig to gig in the coach. So they were driving from Atlanta to, to Memphis, and uh, he got uh, he went missing, and they couldn't find him, so they had to go. I was flying down from Atlanta to Memphis, and I was in the court, in the uh, airport lounge, and I'd never. The only time I've ever spoken to Sid Vicious, isn't that funny? Even though I knew the Pistols, he was the only time I ever spoke to him. And he came in, and he was with a PR guy, and he had a huge bandage. It was blood, it was all blood sort of seeping around his neck. So, uh, and he was singing Boredom, the, the Buzzcock song. <laughs> and then he sat down, he said, I'll be all right, I'll be all right. You go and get me some, some, something. Get me a drink. Get me a, get Jack Daniels. <laughs> so, he said, and he's looking at me, and, uh, and he said, uh, he said, I'll tell you something, you know, when you slit your throat with a broken bottle, it's all right at the moment, but it doesn't fucking hurt afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Time went by. Malcolm had split up from the pistols. They had all gone bad. They had all gone up. You know, they had all gone tits up, really. And um, I was still doing... I was freelancing then for Record Mirror uh, on this retainer. So the editor of Record Mirror, a guy called Alf Martin, um, got wind that Melody Maker were doing a big launch, relaunch, and Malcolm McLaren, who was, a, who was like really hot at the time, was going to be the subject of this big, this big relaunch. So uh, he said to me, um, well, you know McLaren. I said, well, I do, but not. He said, can you try and get hold of him? And we try, because Mal- someone has said something about Alf uh, at, at uh, IPC, who did Melody Maker. And he, he always wanted to get his own back, right? So, so anyway, so I spent the next, I had two weeks. We had the deadline for when Melody Maker was coming out. Too, I tried to find him, couldn't find him. I remember seeing people like Steve Jones and the Marquee, and he said, "Look, if if Malcolm doesn't want to be found, you can't find you. You won't find." So I've given up, but I, I gave one last try. Fate, isn't it? Just fate. And I picked the phone up, rang Glitterbest, and he picked the phone up, Malcolm, and he said, "I know you've been after me. You're tenacious, aren't you?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, meet me tomorrow in Covent Garden." All right. So I went the next day, sat down. And I thought he's not going to come. Yeah, I just think it's a EK. So he walked in, sat down, and um, we had lunch. And uh, I interviewed him for about three hours, in which he told me the story of his life, basically. And uh, and it was it was really good. I've I've just been reading honestly some of the stuff he says in it is fantastic. So anyway, we had this whole lunch and sat down, and um, it was really nice. And that was it. And I wrote. So we got. The story in Record Mirror the week before Melody Makers came out. Mm. So Malcolm would have known there was no way they could pull it, Melody Maker. So he had two bites of the cherry. So he's got the front page of Record Mirror and the following week, the front page. Well, the following week, we had the second part of the Malcolm, but it was like, you know, inside <laughs> last week's thing. So we really, st- so that was fantastic. That was good for me as well because Alf loved me after that. You know, it was really good. And what was he? What was he? What was he like after the whole Pistols thing? Was he? Was he bitter about it? He or? was a bit, but it was a. Um, he was also up. He had. He was a different. I mean, when you read it, it's just sparkling, um, and it's in it's in, it's in fifty seven varieties. Mm. That's a, it. Just is. It's anyway. That was it. And then I never heard from him again. We did never spoke to him again. And then it must have been over a year later. Uh, I got a call and it was um, Jamie Reed, mm-hmm. 
who uh, did all the mm -hmm. graphics and uh, for the Pistols. The now famous Jamie Reedy has really become a top flight artist, hasn't he? And a lovely chap. And um, anyway, so he read, he said, look, I've got Malcolm here. Is that Barry? I've never met him. He said, he, said, that he said, well, I've got Malcolm standing next to me. He said, he wondered if you'd like to write the definitive account of the Sex Pistols. So I thought, well, there's a bear shit in the woods, you know. So I said, uh, yeah, all right. He said, uh, it's a complete shock. You know, I didn't... Uh, so he said, uh, yeah, can we, well, we meet tomorrow in Covent Garden. Why is Covent Garden? Meet, we're meeting Covent Garden. So I said, all right. So next day, went down to Covent Garden, and we would met him up, and we had uh, another lunch, and, uh, and sat down, and, and, and it was decided that I said to him, well, why do the definitive account of the sex business? Why not do your autobiography? And I'll kind of ghostwrite it for you, edit it and ghostwrite So he said, okay. And uh, he, he was well up for that. So then we got together, and... Um, for the next, I can't, yeah, I can't remember. Sometimes he wouldn't turn up and, and whatever. But he used to come around to my gate. I just got married. <laughs> I just got married. And we were having Malcolm McLaren around every evening, drinking, drinking a lot of vodka, smoking a load of fags, all that I provided. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, him talking. Lying down on the sofa and telling me the story of his life. Sounds and like he, some sort of Freudian therapy. It's, it yeah. was... Amazing. Was it and structured or was it a ramble? Or what, no, it, well, it? yeah, I mean, he can ramble, so mm. you just keep, you just, that's what you're there for, you know, to keep it, and then you've got to keep it coherent, and then you've got it, you know, so I had to do it, and I had to do it really quickly. You taped but it, it all. Was, uh, I taped it all, and I still have those. Uh, and there's about 40-odd hours, something like that, 47 hours, something. Gold. Of him talking about his life. I mean, it's just, there's a lost tapes of punk, I've always mm. thought. But they're, um, you know, it's been a, so anyway, I did that and he was then went off and I sent it to him and I, you know, I never heard from him. And uh, I even suspect he may not have even read it because Malcolm, anyone to tell you who knew Malcolm then, that he was like a butterfly, you know. How I, how I got him round to my place, you know, I used to drive him home every night or my wife did if I had a few drinks with him. And uh, he, it was incredible. He, he did come round every night, as, as I say, apart from the nights he missed. He was managing Bow Wow Wow at the time. And uh, so anyway, that was, uh, 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 I tried. I saw him. He used to do stuff for Flexi Pop. He gave us, a, we got a Bow Wow Wow uh, uh, Flexi off of him. Um, and he was on the cover of Flexi Pop. A lot after. Well, you went but on he to do. Got, you went on to do a lot of stuff. Didn't well, he, he? he did, did Buffalo Gals and yeah, uh, big hit, didn't he? Yeah, with Buffalo and, Gals and, and and it was you know. He, he, but I just it obviously gone. He was. He couldn't be bothered anymore. He couldn't be bothered to do it. He, he just, moved on. Sort of. He moved on. Yeah, that's yeah, enough. I yeah, might yeah. I, let me rewrite. Let me get more to my autobiography. Mm -hmm. But I have a contract. You know. Anyway, that's a long. That's a long. Anyway, that was it. And I stuck it under my bed. These tapes, the transcript, everything. Stuck it under my bed and forgot about it. And then I tried again, and they, I got through. And his office came back and said, "No, you can't do. You know, you can't. You're not allowed to do this and whatever." So I thought, "Well, okay." And that was it. And then he died. And I thought, "Well, you know, it just occurred to me. I've got these tapes. I've got. What? Where do I stand? Because this is this is you know wonderful stuff." So uh, I got in touch with someone, you know, who, 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 who knew a few people in the music business. And he, um, he couldn't believe what I had. <laughs> he literally couldn't believe it. He never heard it, but he couldn't believe when I told him what it was. No one's heard those tapes in the world but me. And, 
anyway, so he then represented, uh, he, he had a lawyer and we went there. Blah, blah. And then we went to see a publisher to a, 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 a quite a big, well, one of the big boys. And they loved that. God, the only Malcolm McLaren autobiography in existence. All right, then it goes up to 1980, but so what, you know? That's when That's most when people would remember or right. yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, and then, and then he, he died. Then, then we found out we got in touch with both parties um, because the will was contested by Joe Corey, who was Malcolm's son by Vivian Brilliant, Westwood. Yeah. Not because I think Malcolm left something like 168k. <laughs> that was it. That was his will, and uh, but he left it to his partner at the time she came out and, and won the will which meant she was she became the Malcolm McLaren estate so then I got in touch with her we had a drink one evening together she was really sweet and uh, and and it was all you know she but she couldn't believe I had this she couldn't believe it you know and uh, and I said well have a con she can't be she said it can't be an autobiography I said it is because I've got the thing she never told her obviously you know and we went to another top uh, publisher book publisher with her and honestly, the response, I've never seen it. I've, I got there early before she did and the guy I was with. So I can't, I'm not saying any names. So, and it, so I went in and the CEO was there and I'd only sent them two chapters to look at. And the CEO, uh, when I said my name, the CEO came out and said, Barry, this is shocking. I said, oh, thanks very much. He said, in a great way, come this way. And I went in and we went into the, this is before the, went into the ballroom. There's every director of the company there. And we're talking one of the biggest ones, you know, and it's a, every director's there. And they were just orgasmic. <laughs> it was incredible. You've never seen a thing. Mm. They said, this is the most exciting thing we've had in years. And they said, and to top it, well, you have the tapes. You have, you have that. So, and then she came and, and, and anyway, <laughs> To cut a long story short, she then decided that she wanted, she thought the tapes belonged to her, and that's when it all started. Now and that, now that is a loss, counterculture story, Paul, no? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, um, we wish you well that you get a chance to tell that, Barry. We're yeah. looking forward to it. Um, <clears throat> it is amazing, isn't it, that actually he should excite such, uh, such interesting people. And obviously, you could probably tell us, I mean, what do you think is so exciting about it? I mean, the Pistols are a very important cultural mm. event. And of course, he, you know, was super uh, involved in that. But what is it about that autobiographical stuff that is so exciting? Well, I mean, can I read you a yeah. quote uh, yeah. from that interview I did with him? Not, this is not from the tapes. I hasten to add, if anyone's listening, this is from the, uh, in, the uh, in Record Mirror that I wrote. He said, I was walking down the street the other day and uh, uh, these guys came up to me and said, oh, what are you up to, Malcolm? He said he couldn't believe it. And he said, uh, what's next, Malcolm? What are you going to do now? You see, I gave them something at the end of the day. They knew Johnny Rotten was simply an idea, an idea that gave them the excuse to leave their jobs and have an adventure instead of carrying on and playing safe. And that's what they're grateful for. I set out to swindle the rock and roll industry out of one million pounds. I failed. It was just 950 grand. <laughs> that and I wanted to cause chaos, cash from chaos. I use a word which the British have always found distasteful, exploitation. I wanted to make the show business world cry. 
I really took that word exploit and pumped it dry, using it in any shape or form without mercy. I'm ruthless like that. Every time I came up with a German of an idea, the industry shook. I created a lot of problems, both economically and philosophically. At the end of the day, this is what I said earlier, I made the audience more important than the act. And for that, I would never be forgiven. <laughs> mm, well, incendiary stuff. I mean, if it's all like that, you can oh, see why they're getting excited. Oh, that's just the tip of that. That's from the that's from the right. interview, not from the bloody book. How do you think uh, John Lydon would have felt about that? Particularly what he said at the beginning that that Johnny Rotten was an idea that Malcolm McLaren had. He didn't think a lot of him. You know, he said he liked him at the beginning, but there's no love lost. He didn't. He, he, you know, he thinks he was a bit doddery and didn't know what was going. Why on. do you think not even the general public have this this slightly? Uh, I've, I've got. a he leaves a bad taste in my mouth for some reason. What? Malcolm. Yeah. I don't well, know why that well, would be. Well, I suppose he, he probably sat, uh, he might have set out to leave it. He, he didn't care. He just did not care. What I liked about him is he really didn't do it for the money. Mm. He really didn't. He was, as, that I know for a fact. He just did it, I for a laugh as much as anything. Was he as clever as he thinks he was? Yeah, yeah. Is, that, is that truthful? Honestly, he's a very erudite man. Yeah. He, um, and he... There's a lot of hindsight yeah. stuff, though. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. But don't forget, when he did that autobiography, he was only 34. Yeah. So everything only just happened. It was all fresh in his mind. Whereas most people write their autobiographies when they're in their 60s or whatever, and it's all going, you know, rose-coloured glasses, isn't it? Mm. And, uh, uh, and, and that's what makes this so real and so dynamic. You can see how they were a sort of, in a way, kindred, because, of course, that nihilistic thing about, you know, I want to fuck it all up. They both had that, didn't they, in a way. But with Malcolm McLaren, it was a different, th- different sort of thing because in some ways he, he was a bit more kind of sophisticated about it. And then, of course, would regard John Lydon as, you know, his creation, which, of course, you, I can't imagine that going there. But they're very know? similar when you interview them. They've got a very similar way of saying things. But, um, Barry, we're running out of time. Yeah, and, of sure. course, you know, for more on this uh, 77 Sulfate Strip, The Year That Changed Music and Eyewitness Account of The Year That Changed Everything, your amazing book. And, of course, 57 varieties of talk. So, Pop's Last Stand, 1978 to 89, that's what came afterwards. But just to finish up, because I remember last time we met you, um, you went on, of course, to found and Flexi Pop magazine for three years and lots of other stuff later. But I remember you said to us last time, you know, for you, this was the... This was the peak of pop, wasn't it, really? What was it about that year? I mean, you, you said all those bands released their debut albums and... It, this happens in, in music. You know, you, you get the odd year that just throws up mm. so much. It goes in cycles. Mm. It, it's, 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 it's timed, you know, if you go back like seven years. But don't forget, there's not a lot of history of music, especially in 77. It was only... 20, 21 years old, pop music. Mm. If you look at Heartbreak Hotel, as uh, the first kind of real proper rock and roll, sexy kind of record. You're looking at, what, 21 years? That's all. So it was coming of age. It was very young pop music then. And it was bound to just get older and older and then fatter and fatter. And, but it really was a shot in the arm. And it, it didn't last long. It didn't affect the charts, really really didn't affect the charts. If you look at the charts now, you still get Slim Whitman at number one in the album charts. Slim Whitman, 16 greatest classics, followed by Abba. And... Do you think there could be another 1977? No. No, it's, it's moved on. I don't, mean, I, don't, on. I don't mean in terms of stylistically. I mean, like, can there be... Is pop music able 
to go through that kind of radical transformation again? No, I can't. I really can't see it. It's changed. It's just become a, a different animal to what it used to be uh, in, the, in the 60s and 70s. When it was young, as I said, it's got old. That means, uh, Barry, like it or not, that you have become a countercultural story yourself. You you did it, so thank you so much. Fantastic. So that was it. We are the Bureau of Lost Culture. You can check out us at bureauoflostculture.com for more broadcasts on lost, forgotten, and half-remembered countercultural stories. 